Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. As we continue on in Matthew chapter 12, you're probably wondering how many more times is going to say, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, not too many more, one more after this Sunday, I believe. So Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 45 is where we'll be this morning. Verses 38 through 45. Friedrich Nietzsche, the infamous German philosopher, uh, probably most known for his quote, God is dead and we have killed him, uh, once remarked that he could not believe in a God who wanted to be praised all the time. Just refused to believe in a God that would demand such a thing. It's not uncommon to hear this sort of sentiment from people who identify as atheists or agnostics. Um, I refuse to believe in a God who doesn't do this, or I refuse to believe in a God who would do this, right? I refuse to believe in a God who doesn't fit my idea of what a God should look like, be, or do. Other times, right, you may encounter uh, people who say there's no evidence for God, no evidence for God at all. There's no logical proof. Um, yet Christian and non-Christian philosophers and theologians alike have developed uh, many logically consistent and sound arguments for the existence of God. But when they're presented to such individuals, oh no, I, I don't want to believe in that proof or that evidence. You see, the issue at the end of the day is not that there's no proof for God. The issue is not that uh, atheists or agnostics don't have the capacity to believe. The issue is that fallen humanity exists in an unchangeable condition of unbelief. Humanity exists in an unchangeable condition of unbelief. Evidence won't change unbelief. Logic won't change unbelief. Proof won't change unbelief. You and I cannot change unbelief. And, and, and we, we may look at the world around us today and go, wow, I think unbelief is probably at an all-time high. And maybe that's, maybe that's true in terms of the number of people uh, right, who, who would consider themselves unbelievers. But we don't actually live at the time of the most severe unbelief in history. In our text today, we'll see Jesus confront the supreme unbelief of the Pharisees and their followers, revealing their true spiritual condition of unbelief, describing their future condemnation, and ultimately pointing out that He is the greatest, that Jesus is greater than all they have ever known or read in the Old Testament. Let's read our text starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three nights and three days, uh, excuse me, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. But then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Let's pray as we come to the Word of God. 
Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word that, uh, Lord, every word contained in it, uh, Lord, is true and trustworthy. Lord, that your spirit uh, carried along the human scribes of Scripture, that they would write exactly what you would have them write. Thank you for a perfect revelation of yourself in Scripture. And we thank you that Scripture teaches us about ourselves as well. And Lord, this morning I, I pray that as we come to this text about Christ Jesus and about the unbelief of man, Lord, that you would be at work that you would teach us, that you would reveal to us more the glory of Christ, and that we would realize he is indeed not only greater, but greatest. Father, be with me. Help me to speak clearly, to teach what aligns with your word and what is honoring to you and helpful to your people. I ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Really, we see four things in our text this morning. First, we see the demand from an unbelieving generation in verse 38. Uh, Next, we see the sign for an unbelieving generation in verses 39 through 40. Third, we see the condemnation on an unbelieving generation in 41 and 42. And finally, the condition of an unbelieving generation in verses 43 and 45. Now, if you remember uh, several weeks back, the Pharisees are accosting Jesus and accusing him of doing things by Satan's power. And Jesus has just spent uh, the last few paragraphs responding to the Pharisees, rebuking them. And apparently there's a pause in his response, and the scribes and Pharisees take advantage of this pause to respond to Jesus now. They've heard all of his his, uh, responses, and they answer him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. That seems like a polite request, right? That's, That's different than accusing him of, operating under Satan's power, right? They're just asking him to do some, some kind of miracle or sign, some kind of wonder. But this is really an absurd request when you consider all that's happened leading up to this point. Even a few verses prior in verse 22, Jesus cast a demon out of a man. That's a sign. We go back to chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew where Jesus cast out demons into a herd of pigs or Jesus healed lepers or Jesus healed the deaf, dumb, blind, mute or when he brought the paralyzed man the ability to walk and forgave his sins or when he uh, revived the centurion's uh, servant, right? Or when he uh, brought the synagogue ruler's daughter back from the dead or when he healed the woman with the issue of blood. There's been no shortage of signs. No shortage of signs. No, Mark 8, 11 and 12 tells us that the Pharisees are asking him for a sign in order to test him. They're asking him in order to test him. This is not a sincere request in hopes that maybe Jesus will finally prove he's really the Messiah. Now we can believe in him, right? That's not what they're doing. They're trying to test him. They are trying to test him. They're trying to uh, trip him up. This question doesn't come from a place of hopeful faith. It comes from a place of determination not to believe in the Messiah. It comes from a place of determination to remain in unbelief. Jesus responds to the Pharisees and reveals the ultimate heart that's behind their demand in verse 39. He answers them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. It is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. This is an interesting assessment, isn't it? 
Normally we would think that a wicked and unbelieving person wouldn't care about a sign. They wouldn't care about proof, right? I just don't want to have anything to do with it. But Jesus says here that it is actually uh, an evil and adulterous generation. It is those who are entrenched in unbelief that actually demands a sign. Uh, Jesus uses Old Testament language here to describe the spiritual condition of the Pharisees and their, their followers, evil and adulterous. In Deuteronomy 1.35, God describes the first generation of the Israelites as this evil generation, which according to the author of Hebrews, was barred from entering the promised land because of their unbelief. And all throughout the prophets, Jeremiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, the nation of Israel is described as spiritually adulterous. Because what are they doing? They are unfaithful to God. They're choosing to worship idols instead of the true and living one. And Jesus uses both of these terms here to describe the Pharisees and their followers, unbelieving Israel. And that's what he means by this generation. He's not talking about us today, thousands of years later. He's talking about those living in his own day. The Pharisees and their followers are the evil and adulterous generation. And by using this term, Jesus is pointing out that despite their zeal for the law, they're fundamentally no different than their forefathers. They're fundamentally no different than their forefathers who were hard-hearted against God. You see, the Pharisees are not actually for God, whatever they may say. They are against God as they are opposing his Christ and his Son. Demanding a sign, after all, you know, especially given all that's happened, all the signs Jesus has done, that's really, in some respects, the height of unbelief. It's the height of unbelief. Christ has done so many miracles and has taught uh, so many truths in an unprecedented way. Do you remember what they said at the end of chapter 7? He taught with authority like no one had ever taught before. What clearer sign could be given than what they've received? To demand a sign after all this, after all Jesus has done, really implies that what God has done through Christ is insufficient. The signs Jesus has done is insufficient. The teaching that Christ has provided is insufficient. None of it meets their standard. None of it meets their standard. And really it's to imply that Christ himself, the Messiah, is not enough to meet their standard. See, the Pharisees are committing a very dangerous, dangerous sin, demanding that God meet their human standard. You'll have to do better than that, God. And perhaps you risk doing the same thing. Perhaps if you're watching this morning online, you're at risk of doing the same thing. If you are not a Christian, do you demand that God meet your requirements and standards in order for you to believe in Him? God is far greater than you or I. Christ is far greater than the Pharisees. Who are we, who are they, to demand that Almighty God bend to our will? He owes us nothing. No, to demand proof or, or a sign like the Pharisees reveals a heart of willful unbelief that no evidence will actually change. And maybe you've, maybe you've engaged in a conversation with somebody before and you're presenting proof for God's existence and you're saying, hey, look at this, consider this. And they, they reject it, right? Ultimately, we must realize that unbelief puts us in a place of determining to reject the evidence even before we've heard it. Right? That's the nature of unbelief. Now, the Pharisees have already determined to reject the signs Christ has provided. They've seen all of this, and yet they say, no, it's not enough. We reject that. 
They are an evil, adulterous, unbelieving generation. And Christ is clear in verse 39, no sign will be given to this evil and adulterous generation except for one. And that brings us to our second point, the sign for an unbelieving generation. Now, there is one sign that will be given to an unbelieving generation. And it, Christ is, is very clear in the way he words this, that he is not going to play along with them. No sign will be given to this generation except one. And what is it? It is it's the sign of Jonah. It's the one sign they'll receive, the sign of Jonah. Um, I'll be honest, that's not exactly what I would have expected Jesus to say, right? There's so many other Old Testament figures to pick from, right? Maybe a, a sign of Moses or the sign of Elijah or the sign of David, right? These great and mighty men. But no, Jesus tells them they'll be given the sign of Jonah, that stubborn, reluctant, cantankerous, petulant, pouty prophet who God sent to the wicked city of Nineveh, the worst enemy of the Israelites. Jonah, the prophet that was so mad that God showed mercy to the Ninevites. That's the sign that the Pharisees will receive. What could the sign of Jonah possibly be? But Jesus explains in verse 40. He says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man uh, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, of course, spent three days and three nights in the belly of an enormous fish after he was thrown overboard. Part of this, of course, was to humble and discipline him. The fish was under God's control, following God's command. Swallow Jonah up. And Jonah was humbled. He was uh, disciplined. He was corrected by God. But it was an opportunity for him to see God's grace as well. And this was a miraculous event that we read about in Jonah. It is a miracle. People usually do not spend three days and three nights in the belly of a giant sea creature and live to tell about it. And yet God delivered Jonah. And he ensured that Jonah reached Nineveh to deliver his prophetic message. That was the miracle there. In the same way, Jesus says, the Son of Man will also undergo something incredible. He will spend three days and three nights buried in the heart of the earth. This is the burial of Christ after his crucifixion. But just as God miraculously delivered Jonah and validated the message that Jonah preached to Nineveh, God will likewise deliver the Son of Man, the Messiah himself, Jesus, from the grave, from death, through the resurrection. And this, according to Jesus, will be like the sign of Jonah, a miraculous deliverance from a seemingly impossible situation that parallels Jonah's three nights and three days in the belly of the fish. That grumpy, stubborn prophet Jonah is a type of Christ. He's like a hint about what's to come. He's a foreshadow. Christ is the fullness. Of course, Jonah is not like Christ in who he was. He's, he's a pretty poor example of good character. But Jonah is a type of Christ more so in what God did for Jonah. God delivered Jonah and validated his message to Nineveh, and God will deliver the Son of Man and validate his message too, putting his stamp of approval on it. But Jesus isn't just making an Old Testament parallel for the sake of illustration. Right? There's more to the sign of Jonah here than just the miracle. And just the similarities we've heard above. We, we need to actually think about uh, what Jonah's purpose was, who he was going to, what his message was. Uh, he wasn't sent to bring a message of consolation or comfort to Nineveh. God didn't send him there to say, hey, Ninevites, you guys are doing a great job. Keep it up. Keep it up. He, he brought a message of judgment. 
God tells Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And the actual message Jonah proclaims to Nineveh is, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's not very positive, is it? Uh, Jonah was sent to bring the warning of the impending judgment of God upon Nineveh for their wickedness. And the sign of Jonah, the miracle of his surviving three days in the the fish, confirmed that this man was sent from God, that they needed to listen to what he had to say, that they needed to repent. And likewise, for God to raise Jesus from the dead is a sentence of judgment upon those who would reject him, on those who remain in their unbelief. That's the sign Jesus will give the Pharisees, rising from the dead. That is the ultimate miracle. And yet, we see at the end of Matthew's Gospel, they will still refuse to believe that sign too. They will still refuse to believe the one sign they are given. And by drawing this parallel to Jonah, Jesus is going beyond the miracle to what Jonah and his message represented. Now Jesus comes as many things, but to the evil and adulterous generation of the Pharisees and their followers, he comes as the prophet of God's judgment. Consider the first word of Jesus' first public proclamation in Matthew 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Now, of course, Jesus offers many words of grace throughout his ministry, but he offers warnings as well. Repentance is both a warning and an invitation of grace. For those who repent, right, and come to God, there's abundant grace and mercy, even the opportunity to come to God in repentance is a gift of grace, is it not? But a refusal to repent is met with judgment. The Pharisees do not repent, they will face judgment. If Jesus is compared to Jonah as a prophet of judgment, then the Pharisees in their evil and adulterous generation, they're the Ninevites in this analogy. They're the Ninevites here. That's, That's not a flattering comparison, but it seems unavoidable. For this generation to receive the sign of Jonah in Jesus is for them to receive the sentence and warning of God's judgment just like Nineveh did. And and yet, and yet, Nineveh had an amazing response. They had an amazing response to Jonah's message. And Jesus mentions this as one of two Old Testament references to reveal the path of condemnation that the Pharisees and their evil and adulterous generation are traveling down in verses 41 and 42. Back in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus referenced some Old Testament uh, cities, um, Sodom, Tyre. And he said uh, to the unbelieving uh, villages in Galilee that these Old Testament Gentile cities put them to shame. And here in verses 41 and 42, Jesus says the same sort of thing. He makes abundantly clear the connection between the Pharisees and Nineveh. And this doesn't work out well for the Pharisees. In verse 41, Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this evil generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus describes first how the men of Nineveh, the Ninevites, will rise up on the day of judgment and condemn this unbelieving generation of the Pharisees and their followers. This rising up, this phrase, refers to the resurrection of the living and the dead that will happen at the end of the age. At the return of Christ, when all people, righteous and unrighteous, Christian and non-Christian, every human being will be resurrected to stand before Christ as the judge of all. 
as he sits on his great throne. And Jesus speaks of this um, somewhat parabolic situation in which the, the Ninevites standing before the throne of judgment condemn the Pharisees. The Ninevites, of course, uh, when we think about the story of Jonah, um, we have to realize the Ninevites didn't see Jonah spat out onto the beach. Nineveh is hundreds of miles away from the sea. They didn't watch this miracle happen. And maybe Jonah looked a little ragged, right, when he made it into the city, but they never saw this man emerge from the fish. They didn't witness that. They had no miracle. They had no sign. All they had was Jonah with this little teeny tiny message of repentance. This little teeny tiny warning. That's all they had. And what did they do? Jesus tells us, and we know from the story, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They heard this warning from Jonah that had very little information. And they repented. They turned to God in humility and threw themselves upon his mercy. And by God's grace and work, these wicked idolatrous pagans repented at a simple warning from God's messenger, Jonah. That was their response. And yet the Pharisees, this unbelieving generation, they witnessed absolutely incredible things from Jesus. They have heard abundant words from him. They've they've had so much more exposure than the Ninevites. They've received so much more light than the Ninevites. And what do they do? Hey, Jesus, will you show us a sign? Out of unbelief, they ask for a sign as if what they received isn't enough. They haven't repented of their self-righteousness. They haven't repented of their legalism. They haven't repented of their twisting of Scripture or burdening the people of God with their own traditions. They haven't repented of leading the people away from God. The image here is that the Ninevites stand at the judgment before the living God and say to the Pharisees and this unbelieving generation of Israel, shame on you. How could you ignore what God put in front of you? All we had was Jonah and we repented. You had so much more. You had the Son of God in the flesh doing these amazing things and you hardened your hearts and turned away in your pride. After all, Jesus says, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, Jonah was a prophet sent by God. His message was divinely given. He was worth listening to. But Jesus is on a completely different level. They're not two prophets in the same category. The author of Hebrews demonstrates this in in the first chapter, the first two verses of the first chapter of Hebrews. And he says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Uh, Christ is a prophet. He is the prophet. But he is no mere prophet. His message is no mere warning. He is the Son of God, the heir of all things, the Creator. How much more should the Pharisees listen to Christ? How much more should you and I listen to Christ? And how much more egregious is it to ignore the very Son of God Himself? Something greater than Jonah is here. Christ, the Son of God, the ultimate and final prophet. But Jesus continues in verse 42. He's not done letting the Pharisees have it. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
The Ninevites won't be the only critics of the Pharisees and unbelieving Israel on Judgment Day. Jesus mentions the Queen of the South, that's uh, who we're familiar with as the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of Sheba, who will rise up, who will be resurrected on the Judgment Day to condemn the evil, adulterous, unbelieving generation. Now, the Queen of Sheba, of course, came to visit King Solomon, and uh, this encounter is described in 1 Kings 10. Let's turn there uh, briefly to look at it. So we're probably less familiar with that than we are the story of Jonah. First uh, Kings chapter 10. First Kings chapter 10. We read that when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue and camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who's delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. The queen of Sheba travels this long distance to the ends of the earth, Jesus says, just to see Solomon, just to see if he really is as wise as the report says. And, and she goes, and she is more than satisfied with what she sees and what she hears. Her breath is taken away. That's how in awe she is, and she is led to praise the God of Israel. That's her response to Solomon. She's very likely not a regular worshiper of the God of Israel. She's probably an idol worshiper. We don't know for sure. But notice how she says, Blessed be the Lord your God. She's probably not a follower of Yahweh, but nonetheless, even she, by what she witnesses, is led to praise his name. So why will she condemn this evil and adulterous generation, as Jesus says? Because something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was wise, but Christ is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 speaks of how you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Solomon was wise to be sure, but Christ is the wisdom of God incarnate. Christ goes beyond being wise. He is wisdom itself. Christ is incomparably greater than Solomon. Yes, Solomon's riches are described here for us. He had uh, great food, great servants, a great kingdom, and yet none of that can come close to the richness and fullness of the kingdom of Christ. And yet the Pharisees would look at this, at this man who doesn't even have a home, 
realistically, right? He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have a family. Who is this Jesus guy? Carpenter's son? Yeah, right. How, how can you compare him to Solomon? And yet Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here. Of course, Solomon, even though he's the wisest man in the world, the very next chapter in 1 Kings ends up marrying uh, uh, idolatrous women, many of them. He ends up collecting a bunch of gold and horses. He does everything the king was not supposed to do, and his wives turn his heart away from the Lord. The wisest man in the world could do that. How does that compare to Christ, who redeemed his bride, who was faithful to her unto the end and faithful to his God? The Gentile queen of Sheba was breathless at the wisdom of King Solomon. But the response of the Pharisees to Christ, who is greater than Solomon, whose kingdom is greater than Solomon's, is to be apathetic at best and hostile at, at worst. They've slandered him, they've accused him, they've plotted against him, and yet he is greater than Solomon. And so the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, will condemn them the same way the Ninevites did. I came all the way from Sheba to hear the wisdom of Solomon, traveling hundreds of miles, and I was blown away. I praised God for what I saw in Solomon. You have the Son of God before you. You have wisdom itself. You have the King of kings and Lord of lords teaching you, demonstrating his power, and you ask him for another sign? You're going to continue in unbelief when God has given you all of that? This unbelieving generation, the Pharisees and unbelieving Israel, will find themselves condemned by these two examples from the Old Testament. Since they've received greater light, greater revelation in the person and teaching and works of Christ himself, and yet, in their pride, they say, that's not enough. That's not good enough. Give us another sign, Jesus. It is a fearful thing to knowingly reject what God has said and done and to demand that he do better to satisfy your standards. That's a fearful thing. But Jesus is not done speaking to the Pharisees. He's not done speaking to this unbelieving generation. And in verses 43 and 45, he describes their spiritual condition. The condition of an unbelieving generation. I will admit on the surface, this little section here, 43 to 45, is one of the strangest passages in Matthew's Gospel. Um, I've read this passage many times and I've always wondered exactly what I should make of it. Uh, this, this section about an unclean spirit leaving a person going through the desert, bringing back seven more spirits. Um, and uh, I almost preached that particular text as a sermon by itself next Sunday. And I'm very glad uh, that the Lord uh, called my attention to some important things because this paragraph really fits in the context of what we're looking at today. It fits very neatly there in this larger rebuke. This paragraph is not a textbook on demonology. It's not a textbook on demonology. It's not a literal description necessarily of what demons do or how they operate. Maybe this is what happens. Maybe not. But it's not the point of the text. That's not why Jesus brings it up. He's not teaching us about demons here. He's teaching us about the spiritual condition of this adulterous generation. Now remember Jesus in verse 22 cast a demon out of this, this man. And that's what brought this whole kerfuffle uh, to the surface in the first place. And it seems that maybe he's referencing back to that exorcism here in these verses. We see in verse 43, Jesus says that the unclean spirit, when it's cast out of a person, travels through waterless places. That's the desert. That's the desert. And in the culture of the ancient Near East, there's a link between 
demons in the desert. It's just people think, where do you go to find a demon? Go out in the desert. And so this unclean spirit is seeking rest, uh, according to what Jesus says in verse 43. But it finds none. Um, and maybe that's because there's few people or few hosts uh, in the desert to be found. So, as we see in verse 44, the unclean spirit says, well, I can find no rest, so I will return to my house from which I came. And it goes back to the person it possessed before. And what does the demon, see the unclean spirit, find when it returns? <clears throat> the house is empty, swept, and put in order. It's been cleaned up. It's been cleaned up. It's been swept. It's been put in order. Now, the person's done some good work on themselves. They've, they've changed their behaviors. I I think about how a demon would probably leave their house, and I can't imagine it's clean and spotless. You know, I think like college dorm room is probably what a demon's home looks like on the inside. But this person that they have possessed, they've cleaned things up a bit. They've changed their behaviors, perhaps. There's been maybe some moral reformation, some behavior modification, maybe a worldly form of repentance and change, and uh, I'm going to try to do better to obey these laws and traditions. The very kind of change that the Pharisees were teaching the people of Israel to have. Just obey the law. Just do the traditions. That's all that matters. But the house is not just clean. It's also empty, Jesus says. It's empty. There's nobody else there. There's no other spiritual occupant. The unclean spirit is kicked out, but the Holy Spirit apparently did not move in. Even though this person apparently decided to clean up their act and try to be a better person. But as we'll see in a moment, working on your behavior without the Spirit of God dwelling in you is a fruitless endeavor. According to verse 44, uh, the demon finds the place better than when it left. And so what does it do? Now verse 45, it, it goes out, finds seven friends, seven more spirits, more evil than itself, and they all move in, and, uh, and they begin to party, right? The last state of the person, Jesus says, is worse than the first. And, and that's probably in part because there's 700% more demons in that guy. But it's probably in part, too, because this individual, this possessed person, they think they're, they're good. They think they're fixed. They've done what they need to do. They're self-deceived, which is a perfect opportunity for Satan. Right? There's few things more advantageous to demonic influence than pride and self-righteousness. What does that cause us to do? It causes us to look to everything else but ourselves. And Satan can just have a field day. Right? Think about a military operation. If all the forces are out at the front line, right, who's guarding the command post? Right? Who's guarding the capital? The enemy can easily sneak in. And Jesus now ties this paragraph, this interesting paragraph to the rest of our text at the end of verse 45. This is essentially a parable. So also it will be with this evil generation. The purpose of this whole story about the demon and the, the, the seven more demons and the possessed man is, again, not to teach us so much about demons. It's to teach us about the condition of this evil and unbelieving generation. It's, it's to teach us about what's going on with them spiritually. You see, the Pharisees are only interested in external behavior, works of the law. They've missed the entire point of the kingdom of God. Yeah, maybe they've cleaned up the house, right? That's, that's what their focus is. But they've missed the reality that the kingdom of God is something that changes us spiritually from the inside out. From the inside out. 
Paul writes in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of keeping the traditions of the law. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. But the Pharisees and those who follow them, by focusing on the externals, there is nothing going on inside. There is no Holy Spirit inside. There is no righteousness and peace and joy, the fruit of the Spirit, because the house is empty. And Jesus makes the point that the Pharisees and those who follow them will ultimately become worse and worse as they reject Christ and His kingdom. Because ultimately they are rejecting the new covenant. They're rejecting God's offer of grace and salvation and transformation from the inside out. They are focusing entirely on just doing the law, but they're missing what the prophets spoke of. Uh, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, speaking in the New Covenant, promises, he's speaking God's words here, God says, I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's a very different picture here, right? That is a, not an empty house. That is a spirit-filled house, a house with a new heart. That is the gift of the new birth of regeneration, which must happen before a person could even believe in Christ. That's the grace and gift of the new covenant is the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a new heart, a new nature. But that wasn't the focus of the Pharisees. That wasn't the focus of the followers. They had no interest in the covenant that Christ was bringing to them. Their focus was on working their way to heaven. Their focus was on the external acts of obedience, of, of, of trying to gain approval and favor and, and reputation with people, and completely neglecting what's on the inside. We'll read later on in Matthew where Jesus describes them as uh, unwashed cups, Right? They're washed on the outside, but the inside of the cup is dirty or whitewashed tombs. Looks great on the outside, but the inside's full of dead men's bones. Their condition will ultimately result in them participating in the crucifixion of the Son of God. One commentator makes this observation that Jesus here returns the charge. It is they, not he, who are re-demonizing their generation. For they leave the house empty in which God, the only true alternative to the devil, should reign. And what started out earlier in chapter 12 as the Pharisees tried to tear down Christ has been completely reversed. They said he does all those things by the power of Satan. And Jesus has pointed out to them that they are actually advancing Satan's kingdom by what they are doing. And of course, a large focus of this text is on the Pharisees. It is on their generation. It is on this encounter with Christ. But um, I think there are some takeaways for us too. First, it's abundantly clear Jesus is greater. He is greater. He is indeed the greatest. He's the ultimate fulfillment of a characters we read about in the Old Testament. I mean, in some senses, our, our text this morning teaches us how to read the Old Testament well. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now think about all the characters of the Old Testament. Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Jonah, right? All these figures that we generally think about as heroes. 
when we read the Bible carefully, we see that they are deeply, deeply flawed. That they are deeply, deeply sinful. That they are just like us. They're just like us. So how could they be the hope? How could they be the true hero? They cannot. And Jesus points out that he alone can be the true hero. He alone is greater than Solomon. He alone is greater than Jonah. He alone is greater than David, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you name it. Jesus is greater. And when we read the Old Testament, we must understand that these people we read about are types. They point forward to Christ. Sometimes they display a good thing that Christ will do. Right? David was a good king overall. Christ, of course, is a great, the greatest king. But then we look and see David committing this great sin. Murdering Uriah, committing adultery with Bathsheba. And we realize, we need someone greater than him. And we look forward and we see the faithfulness of Jesus to his bride. We can think about the ways that Jesus is so much better than David. We must do that with every character we read about in the Old Testament. How are they foreshadowing Christ for better or for worse? The Old Testament must be read in light of Christ. He's pointing that out for us here. He is the great fulfiller of the Word of God. A second, our text this morning reminds us that we cannot overcome unbelief. Right? You and I cannot do that. We don't have that power. Now, should we learn about what's called apologetics, right? Defending the faith? Yeah, we should. That's a good thing to do. Should we be prepared to give an answer for why we believe in God? Absolutely. Those are good things to do. That's a profitable use of our time and our study. Um, at the very least, it strengthens our own faith. But yes, we should be able to engage with others about those things. That's good to do. But we must understand we cannot reason or persuade people into the kingdom of heaven. We can't do that. Many people demand proof of God's existence, but when proof is presented, uh, they say, well, it's not enough for me. No, I, I want other proof, not that proof. Right? But in reality, brothers and sisters, we must realize our primary mission to unbelievers is to preach the gospel to them to display the love of Christ towards them and to pray for them because it is God alone who can take a person from unbelief to faith. You and I can't do that. And even Jesus doing signs, right? Just witnessing a miracle, that's not what it takes either. It is a work of God the Holy Spirit in the heart of a person to bring them from unbelief to faith. Can God use our efforts in that process? Absolutely. And, and that's humbling, isn't it? So we should be ready and should be prepared and we should seek to communicate the gospel well, but we must understand God uses the gospel to birth faith. Right? It is the gospel that's the power of salvation, not our apologetics, not our arguments, not our reasoning. And perhaps if you find yourself in the camp of the Pharisees and scribes, if you are not a Christian, again, maybe if you're watching online or if you're wrestling with these things, if you're wanting proof for God's existence, demanding that of him, um, repent. God has given you sufficient evidence of his existence in everything that he has made and every breath that you breathe. He has given a clear message of salvation for you in the pages of Scripture that Christ has died for your sins, even the sin of unbelief, which is a forgivable sin. So come to him. Seek his mercy today. Don't be like the unbelieving generation of Jesus' day. Come to the King of Kings and receive the gift forgiveness, and eternal life. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you are greater than we can even comprehend. 
And Lord, even as we consider you compared to these Old Testament figures, Lord, we are um, brought to realize just how much greater you are. For Lord, we can identify with Jonah. We can identify with Solomon. Lord, we see the, uh, the same sinful seeds in our own hearts. But we do not find those in you, Lord Jesus. You are perfect in every way, gladly doing the Father's will, faithful to do all that he has given you to do. We praise you, Lord, that you are the Messiah, that you are the Savior. May we marvel at your greatness, Lord Jesus. And I, I do pray, uh, Lord, maybe we have a friend or family member or maybe even someone here who is, uh, Lord, in, in a state of unbelief. Father, you are the one who can change that. And we pray you would. Please, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you give the gift of faith uh, to those that you have foreknown. Glorify yourself in that great work of salvation. And we thank you, Lord, for you've done that to us. We know in our own lives how you've brought us, brought us from unbelief to faith. So, Lord, may that encourage us as we go out with the gospel. Please give us opportunities this week to speak of Christ and, uh, Lord, to watch you do the work. Uh, Lord, we ask all of this in your Son's precious name. Amen.